remind me of that. What's up? Oh, what a topical reference, David. I'm just invoking 2005. (laughs) (laughs) All right. Are we all set? Welcome to Rework, a podcast by Basecamp about the better way to work and run your business. I'm your host, Sean Hildner. This week, we're talking about what you actually need to start a business. And I promise you, it's less than you would think. So I'm actually not going to waste a bunch of your time here at the top. Let's get right into it. As always, I am joined by Basecamp's co-founders and the authors of Rework, David Heinemeyer Hansen. How are you? Good, good. And Jason Freed, how are you? Doing all right, thanks. This week, we're talking about how much you actually need to start a business. And I'm going to go through this a little bit differently than, than we have done these episodes in the past. Let's say I'm Sean Hildner. I'm starting a business. This already sounds unrealistic, Sean. Listen, I know. I know. We're just going to have to suspend our disbelief for a second here. I'd like to go through all the things that I think I would need in order to start this business. And I kind of want to hear your arguments against it and maybe how scrappy Basecamp was there at the beginning. How's that sound? Yeah, let's do it. Well, the first thing I'm going to need is a bunch of people, right? In your case, you do need probably do need a bunch of people, let's be honest. <laughs> well, this is a bad idea. Okay, I see what's going on. What, what are you making, Sean? That's the, really the big question. Yeah, okay, let's say I'm, I don't know, writing and selling Dungeons and Dragons modules. You're a pro, you know that stuff. You're, you're, you're all you probably need, right? I mean, what about marketing? What about, you know, salespeople? What about lawyers? What, what do I need here? Well, you could dress up in like a funny Dungeons and Dragons outfit and just <laughs> tape yourself and run around the streets and see what happens. That's marketing, right? <laughs> That'd be enough. Um, well, first, here's the thing, right? First, you have, to, you have to make something to have something to even market or even to sell. Right. And then, you know, a lot of people in that community already, right? Like you're pretty tapped into the D&D world. <laughs> yeah? Sure. Yeah, yeah. You just start talking about it with the people you know and let them spread the word for you and sort of see what happens. Let it go somewhere. Before you even imagine that you need something. I think that's the idea is like, what do you need? You don't know until you put it out there, spread the word yourself, get it out there, do your thing, see what happens. It's just you. So you don't have to support anyone else. Mm-hmm. And then you'll get a read on what you maybe do need. It's not that we're saying you don't ever need these things, but to get started, you certainly just need yourself. If you're capable of doing the thing that you need to do, like if I had to start a business where I had to, you know, make medical equipment of some sort. Like, I don't know how to do that. I might know that there's a business opportunity there, but I may have to hire people to do that. But you know exactly what you want to do. You know exactly what it is that you're doing. And in that case, you have a pretty good head start, I think. So that's where you start. I think the interesting point here too is validate whether need is even a word that's relevant. Is the thing you're trying to do something anyone else wants? I think that's the number one issue for a lot of entrepreneurs. They have this idea in their head and they think in order to test the idea at all, they have to build the most extravagant version of it. When in fact, validating or rather disproving the hypothesis that anyone else could be interested in your damn thing would be to build basically the shittiest version of it to some extent as in not that the the core of it is shitty itself but all this stuff around it can you put forward an epicenter of an idea that would resonate with someone else which in the case of Basecamp was exactly what we did we started building Basecamp in 2003 with how many people there was four people at the company at the time and not even all four were dedicated to this from the outset, because the company was doing other things at the same time. But we started putting 
really basic elements together and then first proving, do we even want it? This is one of those first tests for an idea that, hey, if you're making a thing, would you want to use this? If you can't even convince yourself, which is actually harder than it sounds, if you can't convince yourself that this thing you actually made was something you would actually use, yeah, you're not going to have a any chance convincing anyone else. And we convinced ourselves very quickly that essentially, I think the ter- first two features were like, it was essentially a blog plus to-dos or something like that, that we built. And that was enough. And we started using it for real, with real things on a real project. And that provided that drive to keep going. And then we're like, all right, we've cleared that hurdle. We want to use this ourselves. Again, harder than it sounds. I've tried personally (laughs) to build a substantial number of ideas where I start building it and then five minutes into it or, or a day later, I don't even want to really use it. And I'm like, all right, I guess that wasn't it. But in my head, I had this vision. Yeah, of course, this is going to be great. So first checkpoint, can you convince yourself to use the thing you're building? Checkpoint two, if you show it to someone else, are they just politely saying, oh, that's um, that's nice. Yeah, I could <laughs> see someone would want that. Or are they saying, I want that? Right. That's sort of checkpoint number two. And we cleared that checkpoint quite early on with Basecamp as well, when we had a handful of features and we showed it to, I think, Kudal Partners or something like that. And they were quite eager to say, I want that. Not that I could see other people would want that, but that they wanted that. Mm-hmm. So now you have two validations there. And in that way, keep going, right? Building just the epicenter of something that propels itself forward. And during that entire phase, did we have any of these other things? Did we hire a bunch of extra people to work on it beyond the people who were already working at the company? No. Did we raise a bunch of money for it? No. All these other things, did we hire out a new office in such a way to incorporate this as a new business? No. Did we even incorporate this as a business? No. There was just so many of the traditional steps of, hey, this is a a serious endeavor I'm on that we just didn't do. Validation is a tricky thing. I think it's easy to get anybody to say yes to something because it doesn't cost them anything to say yes to it. Like, do they need that? Yeah. Would you use that? Yeah, because it doesn't cost anything. So, and oftentimes the people you're showing it to are still people you kind of know. So they're still going to be supportive. So I, I actually think in some ways the validation comes before you make anything, which is that, do you know this thing that you're about to do really well? Like we knew that we needed a better way to manage our projects with our clients. Like that was just sort of undeniable because it was sort of a mess for us. And we knew that we were not unique. We knew there were others or had to be others like us. And we knew others like us. And we knew that they had these problems too. Even without showing them the product, we knew they had these problems. And I think in your world, I don't know D&D well enough, but I imagine someone's like, well, to to generate a DD and d character, it's a really manual process. And gosh, if there was some automated way to do this, this would be amazing because every time we play, it sucks. So gosh, you know, there, there's a sense of like, I could feel the demand here. Uh, I have the demand. People I know have this demand. Um, I just think it's tricky to build part of it and ask people if they would use it. That's kind of the, the whole MVP world, which is, I, I'm not a big fan of that personally. I think you should figure out if you're going to build the thing and make it, you can make a simple version of it, but asking people along the way if they'd use it, I, I think is a, it's a hard way to get an honest answer. Well, the next uh, you know thing I'll need when I when I start this business, I, I 
failed to listen to last week's episode, so I assume I will need a bunch of money, especially uh, outside funding. It all depends on whether you can build it yourself, which I think is the key that unlocks so much of what this book proposes. Mm -hmm. Because if you can't build things yourself, a lot of the advice needs to be modified because then you do need other, well, if not other people's money, you just need to be very rich. That's also a very good way to start a business. Just already have a bunch of money so that you can hire people and pay them to, to do things for you. But if that's not the case, which it is not for most people, <laughs> right? the key is you have to be able to build things yourself. Because if you can, then that investment and that need is like your time. And for your example, I think a lot of info products, essentially, it's never been easier if you even just know the domain, if you just know the, the D&D stuff. Can you set up uh, billing? Can you sell things online? Do you know what? 2004, that was surprisingly hard still. Gumroad and if you can dig a little further, Stripe and some of these other things that makes it possible to sell information products online, they're essentially off-the-shelf items now. So the whole need part becomes a lot easier if you can just simply use a mass market tool. All right, can I set up Gumroad plus um, Squarespace plus uh, a MailChimp plus a Twitter account plus a YouTube channel? Yeah, you probably could without even having any particular skills beyond the epicenter of what you're working on. Like, hey, I'm really good at D&D stuff. I can talk it up. I can develop that audience. A lot of this, as the first question you went with, I need a lot of marketing. Yeah. Yeah, you do. You do need marketing. That doesn't mean you have to buy it. Right. You don't have to hire a PR firm. Right. You don't have to hire a PR firm. You don't have to buy ads. Our entire approach, which we cover in some of the other chapters, is essentially building that audience. Are you just interesting enough that people would want to listen to you? And then if people want to listen to you, do they eventually perhaps want to buy from you? If you can't even make them listen to you, what you have to say, can you identify the problems that they have and speak to those? If you fail at that task, your odds of being able to sell them something, very low. One of the things I always loved about Steve Jobs' demos, whenever he was demoing something big, was he always started with the problem. He always started with like, here's why this thing needs to exist. And you'd be like nodding along before you even knew what he was selling. Because he was illuminating the problem and going like, and you'd go, yeah, that's a thing <laughs> that annoys me too. That's so much of what marketing is. You're illuminating a demand that didn't know it was there, right? With Basecamp today, half of the business that we get are people we essentially convert from email. Five minutes ago, they didn't know they needed a project management or collaboration tool. They just like, uh, I'm just sending emails. Like, what's wrong with that? Well, maybe they find out on their own after they drop the ball a few times and things fall through the cracks that like something is wrong, but they don't necessarily even know 100% what that is. Basecamp, and if you land on the site, tries to illuminate that problem. Hey, all this stuff is falling through the cracks. You're not following up in a timely manner. All these ways we're identifying for it. And you can do all that before you even have anything to sell. And I think that that's, that's a way to just figure out, like, do you actually have the chops to illuminate the problem in such a way that you can excite others to a potential solution? If you can't do that, yeah, it's going to be a little harder. One of the other things I'm going to definitely need is time. 
I mean, I should probably quit my job and hang up my podcast hat and, uh, you know, get down to work full time on, on this project in order to start this business. Right. Um, you know, if you say yes right now, Jason, this is <laughs> no, of course not. I'm, I'm just trying to delay the inevitable. I mean, what we recommend typically doing is you start something on the side and you see what happens. Now, you've got to make sure that you can start something on the side with your employment contract, wherever you are. Not all companies let you do something on the side, especially if it's close to the business that you're in. Right. But let's say that's cleared. You'd start on the side a few hours here, a few hours there, figure it out. You know, we advocate good night's sleep and no work on the weekends. But if you're doing something on the side, you might need to take an extra hour here and there. You might have to take a Saturday here and there to try something on the side. The point is, is you don't want to sustain that forever. You need to make a sacrifice here perhaps and, and do a little bit of that. So don't quit your job. There's a really good chance what you're about to do is not going to work. Actually, not even a really good chance. Like almost certainly it's not going to work. Right. So you don't want to give up what you're doing. So you want you want to keep keep your paycheck coming in, keep your job, Keep your focus on that and then on the side, figure this out and and see where it goes. And at some point, it might pull you away enough where you're like, ah, I could do this now or I see there's potential here or maybe there is money coming in and like I can actually quit my job or whatever it might be. You also might find out that you don't really like it. You, you built it and then you're like, ah, I don't actually want to do this though. And this is the thing that I think is missed by a lot of people when they're starting a business is that starting something is actually relatively easy maintaining something is considerably more difficult. Right. Um, it requires sustained effort. It requires a lot of monotonous work and dealing with things and people you don't want to deal with sometimes and problems and all this stuff. It's like keeping the lights on is really, really hard. It's exciting to make something new, but then you're stuck with it in a sense. Um, and you can be stuck with it in a good way and enjoy it, but you could also be stuck with it in a bad way and be like, ah, you know what? I don't actually want to be doing this. I'd rather just keep my job and keep this thing a side project and that's fine too. What I've also found along the same vein is that, as we've talked about before, it's easy to fall in love with the idea of being a person who starts something. Right. Rather than actually being like, this thing, specific thing is the thing I want to go with. I'm going to go somewhere. It's not just a thing because I want to be an entrepreneur. I want to be a starter. I want to do some of those things. Because that's sort of an image or an identity to fall in love with, which is quite different from, okay, now we actually have to do it. And what I find when I talk to a lot of entrepreneurs is that they spend a lot of time thinking about that, thinking about like all the things they want to do. Like how much time have you actually sat down and worked on the idea itself, not the around, not the considerations of where this might go or what you might need, something, no, 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 just the thing itself. What I find is that quite often, it's a surprisingly low investment in the epicenter of the thing itself. So for example, if you're doing your D&D generator or whatever, have you actually invested 20, 30, 40, 50 hours in that to try to really work on it? A lot of people haven't. So getting into and validating, first of all, is, is this something you want to do? Because as Jason says, it sucks. And one of the heuristics I've used on a lot of different projects is, would I want to do this even if it doesn't work? Would I want to do this even if it becomes a failure? Would I look back upon that time and say, the sacrifices I made to create the space for this side project, the Saturdays, the Sundays, the evenings, the whatever that I give up to some extent to try this, totally worth it, even if it doesn't go anywhere. That's a harder question than it sounds, I think. And a lot of people would not ultimately answer yes to that. And I think th then... The odds are just difficult. As Jason says, the vast majority of everything 
doesn't work. Why would you give yourself almost certain odds that you're going to sit like, well, jeez, that sucked. What about uh, physical space? I'll, I'll definitely need an office. I may need, you know, if I do print books, I might need a retail space. I'll need some warehouses, right? I think that question would have worked better like two years ago. <laughs> like now. Now that we're all at home. <laughs> exactly. It's preposterous on its face. But it is yeah. interesting, like literally two, three years ago, let's say, that was a serious thing that people would ask themselves. And, and now it seems ridiculous to even propose it, that that would be one of the first things. Yeah. So what, I mean, Basecamp, 12 years ago, where were you guys? When we started uh, Basecamp, subletting some desks from another business. I think we were renting five desks or three desks or something like that mm-hmm. out from Kudal Partners, who were, was a company or still is a company in Chicago that we were friendly with. And then we needed some space. We didn't have a space and they had more space than they needed. So we're like, hey, could you have a few desks? And it wasn't like a separate office. It was just like desks. And then, of course, David wasn't, I mean, wasn't even here. David was in Denmark. It was, it was, it was me, Ryan, and Matt at the time in Chicago in the small office, this rented space, you know, alongside another company, and then David in Denmark. And it was fine. We didn't even need an office in Chicago, but we just, we had one. It was fine. We only had people in Chicago, so we did that. But the, the office didn't really give us anything. It just, we had one, but it wasn't required for sure. And to your point about like warehousing and all the other stuff, like, <laughs> you know, the answer, like you, you don't need, you don't need that. You don't need a, a warehouse, but also like, for example, we have, we sell some hay merchandise and some base camp stuff. And like, you just outsource this to some company, you send them a pallet of goods and they just take care of the whole thing. And you know, you, you off offload that stuff that isn't really a core competency. And it's, it's never been easier to do any of those things than now. And so, yeah, you don't, really don't need any room to store anything. What about uh, a, su- a support team? I'm going to be getting a bunch of emails. You know, we're going to have to deal with returns and that kind of thing. Yeah, um, you're going to do that yourself for a long time. And uh, it's r- the right thing to do. It's like the best way to learn about, is this thing worked? Does it not work? What are the flaws? What have I missed? What's not quite right? What is great about it? Huh. Uh-huh. What kind of words do people use to describe it, good and bad? I've always enjoyed doing support because you you hear how people describe something in a in a different way. So for example... For a while, people were calling their base camp projects like base camps. Yeah. You know, and like you pick up on that and you're like, we don't call them base camps, but we did for a little bit actually. But you just, you start to hear what people are actually calling things. And like people might call them checklists when we call them to do's. And you're like, oh, people are calling these checklists. That's interesting. I don't know what it means like in terms of where do we go with it, but it's kind of interesting. And maybe you're like, maybe we should allow you to rename these tools that we have. And it turns out now we do that. You start to pick up on these little subtle things that you won't pick up otherwise. So it's very, very healthy. You don't want to do it forever, probably, but certainly for the first few years, I did I did all the support for the first couple of years for Basecamp and it was great. Yeah. Our listeners may not know that, that uh, all of the uh, support emails went directly to you at, in the beginning, right? Yeah. And, and then David and I shared some of those responsibilities and you just learn, you learn a ton. You also, people are amazed like, oh my God, you're the person who makes the thing and you're answering my email. And like, th- this is a good, it's good connective glue really to to do that with, with your customers. And it, it's those advantages that you will only ever have in the beginning. And they're so powerful. I mean, I remember, well, Jason would answer the support questions and then whenever anything was broken i'd get the email well better fix what's broken we actually even at Basecamp have fallen into the trap sometimes when you isolate the people building the things 
from the people getting the feedback about the things that it is a little too easy sometimes to say, well, I mean, just put it on a list. When you're actually the person feeling the requests and you hear about the same broken thing four times in a row, you're just like, I can't write back again to a person. I'm just going to go in and fix it. And it's that speed and that agility that really makes startups startups. You should not be in a hurry to get away from that because so much of the fundamental terrain is mapped during that time. And if you jump past that too quickly, you end up in that space where where it's all fuzzy. It's all hearsay. Now at Basecamp, a lot of it is hearsay. Jason and I don't answer hundreds of support tickets every day. I think Jason at the end was, you're doing like 250, 300 emails. I mean, (laughs) they were very uh, terse replies. I'll, uh, I'll give it that. But it was just a volume of feedback that we don't get that volume anymore. Yeah. And something is definitely lost. The bigger the business becomes, the more is lost. The further you're away from your customers, the further away you are from the direct feedback, how they talk, because now you're having essentially their requests paraphrased by other people who will paraphrase them in the language of the business. So you miss out on the subtleties, you miss out on the, on the specifics, and you miss out on the gift of annoyance of fixing so many things through the annoyance that you got to cherish that time and be like, this is really good. And, and that foundation, that's going to have to carry you for, for a long time afterwards. All the stuff that we build up in those early days around that core to what Basecamp is even today. David had a great point in there, which is something, which is probably a whole different podcast, but there are significant advantages to being small. Um, and oftentimes companies want to blast right through that phase and, and, and move away from that as fast as they can because they think that they're inferior. They feel like they're not where they want to be eventually, that it's like, a, you know, they're amateurs or whatever. If I can just get to this size, then I'll be a success. Yeah. And we do we do this thing called everyone on support where we kind of rotate a support thing, but it's not quite the same. You're exposed to that every once in a while. Um, there are just advantages to being small, big, huge advantages. And that's one of them. You are forced to be closer to the customer. Um, this is really valuable. Yeah. Incredibly valuable. And it comes for free. You have no choice. You have to embrace that versus, you know, now we kind of have to force it. And when you have to force it, you don't really have to do it. You kind of just sort of don't really, you know, right. and there's a, there's a variety of other things too, but uh, that's, that's a, a huge, huge advantage of being small. I think the integration that comes f- from doing everything all the things we've talked about you don't need. They're all functions that someone needs to do. It just happens to be that that someone is you for all of it. It's one person, right? It's one person. Like Jason or I, we've done every position at this company. And that allows you to have a spitzgefühl. I'm sorry? That was Danish. Uh, <laughs> it's actually German. Just like German. the it's, it's on your fingertips that you, you sort of, you know what the thing is itself. Because you've done it yourself, which gives you all these advantages when you then go on to hire or when you have to check up or someone's reporting to you. Did you actually know the domain somewhat because you've done the work? And I think that that education you're getting in your own business, don't truncate that. I mean, maybe there's a way you could boil a four-year college degree into three months just like reading I don't know, summaries. Hey, here's a, a crime and punishment summarized in two pages with the major points. 
yeah, it's not the same thing. <laughs> you don't get the same thing out of it. And your business in the early days is allowing you to have this education. Don't try to truncate that. Like, take a good couple of years of education in your own business and your own problems when you have to get uh, lessons in all of it and you don't really have a, another choice. It's, it's fabulous. And in fact, I'd say it's fabulous for another reason, which is there's a motivating factor, at least it was for me, about doing everything because you're jumping around. You never end up sort of stuck in a rut somehow because there's not even really time or space for that. There's just too many problems in too many different spaces that you're constantly rotating through them in such a way that you don't grind to a halt, which is another reason I think that the early days are so much more productive. Yeah. Now, sort of what I need, need to do is a relatively small list at Basecamp. In the first year, second year, fourth year, the things I need needed to do was a very long list. And if I didn't <laughs> do those things, the servers were down. It, the whole thing stopped working. So your productivity is just a completely different thing. Now, you can go overboard with that and plenty of people do. And that's how they end up working 80 hours because there's always more and all these other things. There are pitfalls to it, but there's also some positive to it. That sense of at least, hey, I spent 40 hours doing 400 different things. And those 400 things were really important to the business. It's deeply satisfying yeah. in a way that I find myself sometimes now not having that same level of satisfaction because more of the things that Jason and I are working on are longer term or they're a little more abstract or they have more gears before it gets down to mm. reality because mm -hmm. we're trying to organize teams and organize people and all this other stuff versus when you're doing things yourself on the product itself, it just has that sense of like, this was a really good day's work. I feel exhausted in all the positive ways of feeling exhausted as though you just did a great workout. Well, fantastic. I think that's a great place to stop. I am ready to go out there and start a business on my own. <laughs> good luck, Sean. <laughs> Thank you yeah. so much. Uh, next week, we're going to be talking about the word startup as we discuss the essay startup business, not a startup. Uh, which should be pretty fun. So I want to uh, thank Jason Fried for being here. Great to be here. And I want to thank David Heinemeyer Hansen. Thank you. Always. All right. We'll see you next week. Adios. Rework is a production of Basecamp. Our theme music is by Clipart. We're on the web at rework.fm, where you can find show notes and transcripts for this and every episode of Rework. We're also on Twitter at Rework Podcast. If you're following along with the book, next week we'll be discussing the chapter Start a Business, Not a Startup. If you like the show, I'd really appreciate it if you would leave a review on Apple Podcasts. And if you have any comments or questions for Jason or David, leave us a voicemail at 708-628-7850. Or better yet, and this is because the sound quality is a little bit better, record a voice memo on your phone and email it to hello at rework.fm. <laughs>